you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real he's so far away doesn't anybody pod in one place anymore last time on be real we recorded together uh, but Noah Bowers wearing his Movie Madness t-shirt, so he took a piece of Portland with him. We're excited to be back in the saddle. I'm Chance. He's Noah. Noah, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I have to say, I agree that it's not as fulfilling being 3,000 miles away from you. It was more fun, yet more, I would say, intimidating to like just be holding this microphone, staring into like the, your your dead, cold eyes, like a doll's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like now that we're apart, we might have timing problems we're thrilled as always for be real to come to you via the playlist podcast network check out our fellow shows like and subscribe and thanks as always to the california college of the arts writing mfa program for generously sponsoring the show we have a cracker jack offering for you here today cracker jack <laughs> that seems like the appropriate kind of throwback whimsy for a hollywood that would make movies like this right um, we're talking about movies where the protagonists are kids who straight up age overnight, leading to uh, fish out of water comedies of a medium order. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about Big, the 19, 1988 uh, Tom Hanks Penny Marshall film. We're going to talk about 13 Going on 30, which is a 2004 rom com with Jennifer Garner. And we're going to talk about the new DC. Uh, cinematic universe film shazam that's our topical hook but i think we're going to discuss it last is that what you wanted to do i think one needs to pay homage to big before one would ever (laughs) even consider talking about either 13 going on 30 or shazam yeah one must walk before one transforms into an adult that's right lest one be caught wearing your dad's suit walking down the sidewalk at the end (laughs) Let's see if we can continue this these hypothetical, uh, terrible passive voice sentences. <laughs> I bet we uh, can. No, let's talk about the movie Big. Unless, is there anything else we have to say? How are you? You looking well? I'm good. Uh, just overcame a 10-day cold that Oof. began the moment I left the West Coast. Right. Your body fucking gave up. Yeah, so sorry for anyone whose emails I haven't returned or calls i haven't whatever uh i've been down i've been down can't imagine what place you've come to in your life where you're like i'm gonna listen to this guy's podcast to see if he (laughs) gives any reasonable explanation for why he hasn't emailed back i'm sure there are at least three people listening (laughs) for whom that is the case (laughs) it could be half our listenership and just people trying to track you down right (laughs) well chance said he's back in brooklyn (laughs) and what they probably recorded this what three days earlier right well, I'm well. Thanks for asking. Portland won game one of its NBA playoff series. My dad's in town. Sarah's making a cake for the Game of Thrones premiere. I'm I'm in great spirits. She's poisoning the cake, you know. Oh, really? Well, that's the Game Trying of Thrones joke. Trying to give me one joke. of those purple Joffrey deaths. Oh, yeah. Will your well, eyes like turn purple and pop out of your head? I'm either getting a purple death or I'm going to eat my son. That's the last two times I've seen pastries on yeah. that show. <laughs> or Dig Dug's just like, actually, Sarah's your sister. Oh, great. (laughs) Well, she can also perform some therapy on me. Um, Let's talk about the movie Big. I would love nothing more. You've seen this movie before, yes? 
Oh my god, I have to say that this is maybe one of my all-time favorite movies. Really? That's nice. I had not seen it in a while, and I was worried, if I'm going to be honest with you, that like it was going to be schmaltzy or didn't age well in some way or like I'd see something that would be creepy and like leave me disturbed about this movie that I'd cherished for so long. But I can report, yeah. I don't think that really happens. Right, yeah, one can imagine with years removed just from this premise that it could go terribly wrong when adult bodies with child minds start interacting with adult bodies with adult minds but yeah we can we can say out front that i i I think this movie handles it pretty tactfully for the most part in a movie where a 13 year old sleeps with a 35 year olds it definitely like it doesn't make a point about that carries it off Um, It, it pulls it off gloriously so this is probably uh Right there among Penny Marshall's best movies with League of Their Own. Um, it definitely has a League of Their Ownness to it, where it's like, is this based on a true story? <laughs> that was not my reaction. What part of that are you getting from this film? Maybe, like, there was... I was talking to Lucy, my girlfriend, <laughs> with whom I'm in a long-term monogamous uh, cohabitating relationship. Yeah. Um, if you say girlfriend and, before, you don't have to say all that stuff, remember? But I was playing out... Uh, what this like what the movie would have looked like had it continued because obviously if this was like in a world where the media exists like it would be a big story that this kid who was kidnapped for six weeks at least Uh like comes back and then wouldn't the people at mcmillan toys think like it's kind of weird that this guy walked out of this meeting and then this kid named josh baskin turned up anyway eight episodes 1988 (laughs) Yeah, we should just do big. <laughs> right. In their 120th episode, they decided that big was where they wanted to stick. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, 1988 big. Doesn't everyone know the story of big? Yeah, totally. Uh, kids uh, at the Kid carnival. wants to get on a roller coaster to right. impress a girl. Can't do it. Goes to a an arcade machine called the Zoltar. Right. Uh, puts in a quarter, wishes to be big, and then this fucking thing eats his quarter and pops out a little card that says your wish is granted. And not 12 hours later, he's a young, virile Tom Hanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, and sort of a, what what do we want to call this? Just like a barely pre-prime Tom Hanks? Splash is four years I would earlier. argue this is prime Hanks. You think this so? This is the kind of performance that... That's the reason we feel the way about Tom Hanks. This is like you're excited to see him on SNL yet, but he hasn't won any Oscars, Hanks. He hasn't quite shifted into prestige, but this is the kind of Hollywood fare that like people will think of when they think, oh, Tom Hanks in like a goofy comedy? Like maybe you put him with a dog. I listen to (laughs) That's a hooch reference, of course. Um I I would listen to an argument for this being like peak likability. Maybe it's more of his like cotillion coming out kind of likability because this is a big this movie was a success. I mean, I even own this movie on DVD for Christ's sake. My parents have seen this movie, I would say, sure, five or ten times Mm -hmm. for 1988. That was Euros Born. Two great things came out in 1988 (laughs) Noah Daniel Ballard and Tom Hanks in Big. I wish I were big. Twentieth Century Fox presents Tom Hanks. 
big. I turned into a grown-up, Mom. I made this wish on a machine, and it turned me into a grown-up. So now what? You get a job. You cannot get a job. Yeah, so I think the most amazing thing, because I hadn't seen this movie, I don't think I'd ever seen it all the way through and hadn't experienced any of it since I was a little kid. The things that stop it from going wrong, as, like we said, as, you know, 30-year-old Josh with a 12-year-old mind, um, like, enters a relationship with a woman and gets a job at a toy company and all these different things are just, like, unbelievable precision and earnestness of performance from Hanks and the fact that Penny Marshall much like in a league of their own is incredible in these movies that are like true like grade a entertainment but also have like some real emotional intelligence to them i think is my big takeaway yeah and i think all these movies hang in that lead performer you know whether where one falls in the balance beam of how unaware am I? Like, oh my God, I'm an adult. Like, what do I do? Right. And then all of these movies then posit by the climax that because they are a child and whatever kind of child they are, that uniquely positions them to succeed in an otherwise adult role. So like getting from A to B, like some people play it a little schlockier than others. I think Tom Hanks has that like perfect balance of like by the end of the six week thing, like he's a totally acclimated adult. Hmm. You see like a, a true arc of he's really only upset about his state of being for 36 to 48 hours. And then he just, as an adult would, takes that trauma and puts it in as like just lingering low level sadness and acclimates to the role he's sort of accidentally fallen into, which is, yes, a, a VP at this like toy conglomerate. And then right. he basically predicts the iPad being invented, and then he goes <laughs> back to being a kid. Right. Um, and of course, it's because he's a kid that he's so good at like walking into this toy company where the where Robert Loggia, the CEO, is like, or president of a company, whatever, is like, well, John Hurd, will you stop telling me about our goddamn quarterly reports? We're a toy company. So he takes very kindly to Josh Baskin being like, who would ever want a building that t- turned into a robot? Like that's not a toy kids would like. And Robert Lewis right. is like, we need to we need to promote this guy who just answers the phones and does data entry now. Right, and he's worked here for three days. Right, but the, of course there is that iconic classic Hollywood scene of him, Tom Hanks, and Logia playing the piano in F.A.O. Schwartz works with great. Their feet. Still works. It's amazingly. one of the finest. It's a long sequence. I yeah. forgot like how long it was. It's not like a quick montage. They do chopsticks too. And that's almost like the longer, you know, more elaborate sort of leaping from one end of the piano to the other kind of acrobatics. But it's a fabulous scene. It's but it also plays into this movie's conception of like corporate New York life, which is like as long as you're like goofy and eccentric and have like a vision for something and predict something else, yeah, like we're gonna give you a, a huge salary, right, and really not any oversight. Sure. Um, and so for yeah, for Hanks, it's developing this what it's a comic book that becomes it's sort of like a choose your own adventure exactly. thing. It's a comic book with a computer chip in it. We haven't yeah. seen prototypes, just a couple of uh, <laughs> hand-drawn slides. Can I point out a scene that kind of shows 
just the level of care that goes into this movie on Penny Marshall's part. So uh, Josh's mom thinks he's been kidnapped because shortly after Big Josh goes to the fairground to see, can I find the Zoltar machine? He does what any kid would do and runs back into the house and is just like, mom, can you help me? And she's like, Jesus Christ, what the hell is this like man wearing my husband's clothes doing in here? Get out. What have you done with my son? He and his little buddy, Billy Capecchi, um, kind of see no other option but to make it seem like a ransom has taken place. So Big Josh... Well, not even a ransom, just like a kidnapping. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. There's no demands. They're just like, no. oh, he's fine. He'll be back soon. <laughs> um, but he calls from the office, right? And the mom's like, you have to let me know that he's alive. And he says, well, okay, tell me something that only Josh would know. And the mom is like what is the song I sang to him when I was a little kid? And so Josh starts singing memories in this really kind of like, like bored way. Like he's embarrassed, he's embarrassed to have to sing this song that maybe his mom sang him from musical theater, like four years previous. The mom is breaking down because she thinks a madman (laughs) is like (laughs) detachedly singing this song. And then over his shoulder, John Lovitz, his coworker in the next cubicle is like, what the fuck is going on but you have three totally parallel people like playing this moment for everything it's worth that's the kind of just like human complexity and directorial specificity that doesn't exist in the other films memories like the corner of my mind misty water called her memories of the way we were (laughs) scattered and let's talk about elizabeth perkins sure yeah absolutely i think she's great in this she's wonderful this is the other thing that the movie does which is surprisingly ambitious and i can't tell if it's like where the movie like starts to lose me or whether it should gain even more points is because it's like a penny marshall movie and she's interested in these like stories of women and especially professional women and what feminism means in the late 80s she like really earnestly starts to invest in this exploration of like, well, how, how good of a thing is a fairly fulfilling, genuine sexual relationship with a man who is a child in his mind? Um, right. And what does that mean for well, Susan? Well, that's my question to you is that, do you think that implication is by having them like make out and him touch her, her bra, her brassiered breast? Yes. Do you think that implies that they had sex? Oh, 100%. The, you think that they had intercourse? Well, yeah, because he ru- comes into work the next day. Right, and he's, and he's like, just like, uh, uh, what's up? And he like and then, high fives the post office guy. It's great. And then but later maybe on. Maybe that's just he like made out with a girl. Because I was thinking about it, like if he's 13, it's conceivable that he's just never had an intimate moment with a woman. And maybe the bigger read on the movie is that Elizabeth Perkins' character is simply looking for a fulfilling friendship with someone outside of her comfort zone. Because there's an interesting exchange she has with the dad from Home Alone when she when he accuses her of sleeping with like every male character we've seen so far. Yeah. And she goes, no, that's not what this is. Like, he's just not the new guy. There's something else about him, which is either a child predator read or it's a more of a read of like, this dude is a harmless, non, like asexual sort of 
you know, I mean, I don't think the implication is that young Josh has even gone through puberty yet. Right. I mean, he's attracted to, to girls because there's some sort of like social contract in his suburban New Jersey town, but he doesn't like have sexual fantasies. And then him and his, his friend don't even talk about that. So I think maybe that's the read. It could be. I definitely but, assume. But you think this 35 year old and this 13 <laughs> year old have sex? Well, yeah, I, well, I mean, also there's the body language in the other scene where they like almost break up and then he kind of whacks her playfully with the paper and then they like get into a get into a real pose on the floor that made me think that they did it even again. But I don't my I don't the movie handles it well enough that I don't immediately go to like some sort of, uh, you know, statutory rape narrative. I think it's just like a really kind of murky like what does this if, yeah. mean to Elizabeth Perkins? Well, if anything, it sort of analyzes the fact that she just has trouble being clear about what she wants. Like there's that scene with the prominent Pizza Hut advertising in the foreground where she's like, what are we? Like, is this just an affair? And like Tom Hanks as a 13 year old boy has like no context to answer her complicated adult question yeah so finally she just sort of has to word vomit how do you feel about me and then they get into this like very i would say i don't know sort of boyish tussle you know Mm -hmm. what i imagine our former english professor rd stock (laughs) to do with his cats Uh but then it becomes they like make out and that's what leads to the ending of this this movie. So he has like one, they have one final bang and then he's out. One thing I want to bring up before we, uh, before we pivot here, and I had never thought about this. I'm not sure that Forrest Gump exists without this movie. Because in some ways it's a very similar being there style dynamic, which is you put this guy in front of people in an important or relatively important places who becomes like a cipher for what they want to hear right and he's just like spinning some kind of you know juvenile axioms like what's going on and everyone thinks he's like he's got it all figured out um which is like a dynamic that is ramped up to a thousand in Forrest Gump but like I think you could watch I think Zemeckis could watch this movie and be like oh Hanks would actually be perfect for me in seven years yeah there's that savant thing right yeah, so should we tell people how we rate movies on the show and then rate big? Please. So we got four ratings. Oh, we're doing it live? Yeah, we're doing it, remember? Yeah, you're right. So we're explaining these live now. We got four ratings on this show. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first word refers to like intellectual, cinematic quality. The second one is more subjective. It's just like, did you like that? Would you rewatch it? What's the entertainment value? Um so a good, good movie is like a favorite of ours, like Jaws. A bad, bad movie is just a movie that we patently do not like. Uh, a good, bad would be like Schindler's List or Requiem for a Dream. Very well-respected movie that's not very watchable. And bad, good would be like some trash you really enjoy. I'm afraid to watch uh, Roma because I feel like it'll be like really good, bad. Oh, it's extremely good, bad. Anything um, by the guy who did Beast of No Nation. Isn't he doing? Isn't he doing the new James Bond movie? You're right. He is. I bet that's going to be good, bad, or maybe just bad, bad. It might. Who knows? Um, I think big is an easy good, good. I totally agree with you. I think this is one of the better movies that there is in the world. 
Wow. I think it's great. I think it has a really good script. I think it's really well directed. Amazing performances. Cinematography by a young Barry Sonnenfeld. That's right. Um, Was there anything in here that made you think that guy's going to direct Men in Black? Well, there's the song sample when they're like hanging out of the song that Will Smith will then use to create the Men in Black theme. Oh, my goodness. You didn't think... I thought about that immediately. I was like, did Sonnenfeld, who probably had nothing to do with the sound cue, listen to that when they're hanging out? It's it's the um, montage where she's jumping up and down on the, the t- trampoline in his uh, right. Soho loft. Yeah. Yeah, this movie's good. We didn't even talk about... I had completely forgotten about where uh, Hanks is staying in the seedy hotel and just, like, cries? Holy shit, it's so upsetting. It's it's very good. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, a great early, like, emotional anchor for this movie to show what the stakes are for him. And then it just, like, rolls from there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just thought... the One of the best lines ever, just in cinema history, is, of course... Like, this place looks good, right? And Tom Hanks is like, what are you talking about? It's like, St. James, it's religious. (laughs) That's really good. I have to say that every time I've, like, stayed in a shitty hotel or motel with my family, or even if my dad will just see, like, something like similar to St. James or something in a hotel, he'll be like, that place looks nice. It's religious. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do a quick word from our sponsor and then move on to 13 Going on 30. This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Jenna Rink couldn't grow up fast enough. Smile, sweetie. Don't you knock? Are you wearing a bra? You're not ready Dad, for stop a bra. taping. So on her 13th birthday... Dad. Check this out. Wishing dust. She only made one wish. I hate being 13. I just want to be grown up. And she woke up 17 years later. Okay, so this came out in 2004. I like Wikipedia. What a time to be alive it was. It wasn't... It was I, just... I was and it wasn't great. Um... Movies like 13 and going on 30 were coming out. Yeah, John Kerry was about to lose. It was a great time. <laughs> um, I like what Wikipedia has to say. This is an American fantasy romantic comedy. Yeah, it's definitely and, in the school of uh, girl, uh, ghosts of girlfriends past, which I just watched <laughs> on HBO. I don't think they mean to use American quite that way, but uh, it's a heavy adjective here. Um, it looms large. <laughs> Yes, I think they're just talking about nation of origin, not cultural influence. (laughs) But this is an American fantasy romantic comedy. Um, It's directed by a man I'm unfamiliar with named Gary Winnick. And this movie feels like it was directed by a man named Gary Winnick. Uh, It stars Jennifer Garner uh, as 
uh, Jenna Rink. She yeah, is a, that's right. She's a teen in uh, in the eighties. What is it? Eighty seven, and she's just about to have her her thirteenth birthday party. And oh yeah, and, and her best bud, the very uncool Maddie. Um, is coming and he wants to listen to talking heads and just pal around in a platonic way. But of course, uh, Jenna feels the need to impress uh, the cool girls at uh, school with their top knots and their exercise outfits and whatnot. And she invites them over and the, they treat her pretty poorly at the party and eventually uh, lock her in the closet under the illusion of playing spin the bottle with some hot blonde guy from school. Um, then they all leave, stealing the food. Maddie comes back, uh, thinks that she's in the closet for him because one of the girls says that. Uh, they smooch. Jenna gets really, really pissed, throws at him this like dollhouse that's like personalized for her whole life. It was a very thoughtful, very crafty gift. Um, basically, well, we find out later that this kind of ends their relationship, but cr- I'm missing a critical detail where uh, where fairy dust sprinkles out of the dollhouse. Yeah, he has this, like, he got at Party City, this little, like, uh, <laughs> adhesive <laughs> package of, like, fairy dust that he's right. put on Jenna's dream house. Yes. It's supposed to be, like, a Barbie dream house, but it's got, like, Jenna's favorite thing, and he, like, learned how to wire a battery in a little light bulb, so he's, like... He's he's inserted electric in this thing. It's a whole production. It's true. It's and true. it took him weeks, he says. Um, but it also acts as this catalyst for being like, I mean, and in young Jenna Rink's defense, like a pretty goofy thing to like give someone for their 13th birthday. Wow. Like here's a weirdly large diorama that I made of like <laughs> me imagining you in the tub. Like, give me a break. <laughs> And she ap- appropriately way. reacts as though this is strange and like doesn't keep up that weird uh, whatever. Anyway, but yes, the aforementioned fairy dust, uh, when it's falling on her, she says, I wish I were like cool. Uh, or I to, wish I was 30, 30, she's 30 re- flirty and thriving. She's a devotee of uh, Poise magazine, which is, which the magazine should be called Pose, right? It's a fashion magazine. Why is it called Poise? Anyway. I don't know. But it's supposed to be like Seventeen or Us Weekly or whatever. But she's recently been reading an article called uh, 30 Flirty 30 and Flirty and Thriving. So she wishes for all of those things. And lo, before the tears are even dry. She kind of like just falls face first into the closet yeah. and wakes up as Jennifer Garner at the height of her career. In the year 2004. In the year 2004. So let me, let's make a quick distinction here because this movie is definitely one of these I aged overnight movies, but it's also like a time travel glimpse Christmas Carol style movie. Um, and a lot of it's more family man than it is. Uh, yes. Yeah. It definitely has a family manness to it, but at the same time, there's no like person guiding her through or anything. So I think it is still a jump in, but like it, yeah. What happened was she just like this spell set up for her, a path that would lead her in 17 years to be 30 flirty and thriving by virtue of the fact that, you know, on some timeline, her life has actually played out. When she arrives there, magically, the comedy is less big style and actually more like overboard or something. It's more like an amnesia comedy. Like, who am I? What did I do? 
Am I right? Am, am, I, am I a bad person? What is what did what did I do before? What was my life like? Right, because she has this context she doesn't understand. Whereas Tom Hanks was like a total outsider who just fell ass backwards into money and power. Right. Uh, the this woman has worked conceivably for all of her adult life right. to become the editor of this ma- fashion magazine, this mediocre fashion magazine, and thus, as an audience, we are plunged into a Hollywoodified version of magazine publishing. In the way that toy production is similarly lampooned and misrepresented in toy and uh, big, yeah. And so I think the only things we really have to get out of the way in the new world before we start diving in deeper is that uh, Judy Greer plays Lucy, who is her co-editor at Poise, but that's also the same girl who was the leader who treated her so badly at the party. Um, and then, of course, one of the first things she does having no idea what's going on in her 30-year-old world is is track down Maddie, who's played by Mark Ruffalo on the present timeline and is a photographer. And you can tell because he has a blue velvet poster on his wall. <laughs> yeah, he's got a picture of a taxi driver up. He's a photographer. Yep. He doesn't seem to ever work except for in the scenes where he works uh, and creates some really goofy-looking... Can we, let's, okay, we'll talk about like the things she comes up with in a second, but Mark Ruffalo has, of course, become like this sad young literary guy who, and really, and the moment he was so sad was when Jennifer Garner, as a 13-year-old, threw back his fucking uh, castle dream house at him, and then he's like, well, the next beautiful woman I see who I have no feelings for, I'm just going to marry, because... Jennifer Garner heard me 17 years ago. That's what hurt people do. And I'll never love again. Um, so I had seen, have you seen this movie before? I had years and I think I saw it like either when it came out or like on TV slightly after. Me too. I definitely watched it. I definitely thought it was kind of like middling, but pretty good. Very of the time. <laughs> romantic. <laughs> It is very middling. But I definitely like, you know, put it in that kind of around the notebook, like that whole wave of mid-aughts rom-coms where I was like, well, that's no pretty woman, but it's like, it's what we had. Um, In retrospect, this movie is like ludicrous. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't make a lick of sense. No. Uh, Starting with maybe one of the things that don't make no sense is... (laughs) Jennifer Garner's performance. Well, this is this movie, like I was saying, it hangs on that thing of like how much of a savant they're going to be as they slowly assimilate to their worlds. Right. Whereas like Tom Hanks, like as a true player, six weeks in, like has caught up for 17 years of miseducation and socialization and is thriving. And actually, like Jennifer Garner's about to lose her job. Yes, true. And even if she manages to save Poise magazine in 2004 by like reverting to some sort of like make America great again kind of uh, high school yearbook montage, she's going to get laid off in 2008 anyway when the magazine industry comes to a grinding halt and ceases to exist as we know it. 34 and poor should have been what uh, young Jenna wished for. Garner makes... A very strange choice, I think, for the first like 40 minutes of the transformation. She 
whispers and continues to try to speak in the voice of a little girl, which I think unfortunately like violates one of the cardinal rules of this like genre, which is that like you're physiologic physiologically changed. Like you have an adult voice, okay? So you use it. Um, that Tom Hanks does it, Zachary Levi does it, and it becomes really weird because it's also something she quits on. One of the things I couldn't remember about this movie was whether uh, Jenna even had a 13-year-old brain after she traveled forward in time, and I think the reason I forgot is because the movie also kind of forgets. Well, that's the thing. Like, It doesn't decide between is this movie does the movie have like this matrix kind of thing where you like you know just plug in the last 17 years cartridge into your brain and you like have all that info like i thought i think that makes a more interesting choice where like you not only have all these memories and stuff and can do this thing and it's weird that you know how to do it but also you're like looking back with this like very sort of condensed jump as if they were a kid. But then, like, the ending of the movie is kind of ruined because, like, the whole sort of at least career arc storyline for Jennifer Garner is based on this, like, corporate espionage she's right. been doing, which she can't know about until the end, where it's, I mean, this is sort of the memento of uh, rom coms of little people becoming older people. By the time she is successfully laying out the redesign for Poise magazine, it's like, well, that's not the same as being a kid who's like, what if we made the coolest toy I ever wanted to play with? It's like, how are you how are you able to redesign a magazine? And the movie convincing you, the viewer, that Jennifer Garner's child has fundamentally reinvented like what a magazine could mean by putting together these a yearbook three yeah these three yearbook pages with these like not very impressive black and white photos <laughs> right that we've seen montage after montage of uh mark ruffalo having like a grand old time taking and then you, this is it, it's not the way tom hanks invents the ipad like no. that shows a little bit of prescience you know like what do kids do they just want to choose things and press buttons and whatever right this movie like i guess like s- does not see the forest for the trees of like what magazines mean and like there was no even copy it was just photos <laughs> like wh- wh- what are these people buying and by the end Jennifer Garner is like delivering like pretty earnest adult complex rom-com speeches akin to like I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her has have this has this movie forgotten that she is 13 in the way that every Hanks Perkins interactions has this kind of weird layer of two people who seemingly do fulfill each other at this bizarre moment in both their lives but can't quite connect in the way either one wants Jennifer Garner is just being an adult. It's weird. Well, this movie has the really bizarre hole of like, it climaxes with them being together, but like they decide to be together at 13 and then for some reason then live out the next 17 years and at 30 for some weird thing that Mark Ruffalo's not in on because he's like not aware of the timeline in which they weren't together is like, that's that's when he wants to get married. Like, why wouldn't they just get married at 18, you know, or any time leading up to when they're adults again? It doesn't make a lick of sense. You know what would be like a rip-roaring, weird, transgressive movie that would never get made? Is if you could condense 
13 going on 30 into like 20 minutes. And then you have this weird plot line where they do live it out and she knows and he doesn't and they like still fail. And it's like like crazy or something. It's a weird, sad movie. I mean, that's sort of like why I think uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is so good. Because you have that sort of cyclical. That movie does exist. That movie does exist. Uh, thankfully, that's a great movie. Mm-hmm. What do we think about Andy Circus in this Holy shit. role? <laughs> where I mean, I thought that dude just put you know little stickers on himself and like pretended to be monkeys and things. Well, that the thing is, his best moment in the movie is where he begins to dance to Thriller in a way that is so committed. Um, that there's no way the production needed that from him, but like he's a good physical actor when he's just he's like a great physical actor walking around mincing, being like, "Where are my pages?" It's like, "Holy shit, please stop!" I think it's funny in this the way that they rely on that thriller sequence to stand in for the piano sequence from yes, big. Like it has this musical number in it where Jennifer Garner doesn't even do that good of a thriller dance. She really doesn't. And somehow with her weird connection to Mark Ruffalo, can you imagine if somebody (laughs) from your childhood like came out of the woodwork at your age now or approximately my age now and was just like, hey, I know that we haven't talked since like we were bar mitzvah age, but like. Could you do a choreographed dance with me? Do you want to hang out and like have our lives be dependent on each other in perpetuity? Oh, I see. If not, then I'm just going to go back to when we were kids and fucking change everything. The problem, though, is that you're 30 and you're not flirty. Otherwise, you would say yes to such a thing. Yeah, just 30 and thriving. <laughs> I When the fairy dust fell on me, I, I specifically requested not flirty. Two out of three ain't bad. Um, just 30. Right. <laughs> Um, do you yeah, think weird. Jennifer Garner is like a first class like project carrying actress of this sort? It sounds like you don't. I really don't. And I was looking, and of course, as I was watching this with the woman with whom I'm in a monogamous long term relationship, I was like, "What's Jennifer Garner's? Who's that, Sarah? Yeah. Uh, what's Jennifer Garner's best performance?" And we were like, "Juno." She goes really quickly into playing moms after this, which says as much about Hollywood's casting limitations, of course, as it says about Jennifer Garner. But she went from being like a, a like a bit player in things like Dude, Where's My Car to exploding on Alias to getting this is kind of like her first starring vehicle. Um, her it's not a super rich filmography. And I you no. know Jen's not the most versatile. No. no she seems super nice though can i tell you when i knew that this movie was just like not bad, with bad. it well <laughs> there, there's an early spoiler but not with it tell so me. there's a part where her boyfriend who plays for the new york rangers he's uh, not the best new york ranger but he's the new york ranger with the best ass that's right um samuel ball is the actor for all we would know him from <laughs> okay uh, um and he begins to do what we are supposed to surmise is her favorite striptease to Ice Ice Baby. Am I right? Right. But this movie, and I could not believe it screwed this up, misses, it misses so many opportunities to do uh, year comedy from 87 right, to 2004. Her... She should say, isn't this under pressure? 
Because it's like a sample. Right. Her uh, cultural lexicon would only be from the 80s. So that would be hilarious to be like, oh, what a this is a song from my era. And people will be like, what? I mean, the thriller thing is the perfect, albeit jumbled play at that. Yeah. I, I think a braver and a funnier and a smarter movie makes her not be like Make America Great Again high school yearbook being her aesthetic that she pushes on this magazine that needs yeah. this facelift. Yeah. I think it should just be like hyper 80s culture because she wears like things that are super fashionable in the 80s and no one really even comments on these like cow print chopsticks coming out of her head. <laughs> right. Right. So why not make the movie about the clear choices that she's making because she's having this fashion renaissance accidentally? I like that revision. I like that revision a lot. Uh, yeah, so this movie is... Uh, it's not like unwatchable, but... After it's ha- definitely not unwatchable. But having... But like, s- but it's, it's so a bad, bad. stupid. It's so stupid. And Mark Ruffalo is so wasted in this. Right. You know, and Mark Ruffalo is not a good casting choice for your like romantic leading man. I don't think. I think he's a little too self-aware to be asked to slum it like this, because he knows. He's like, don't he's you know that in three years care. I'm gonna be tracking down uh, the Zodiac killer with no success? Yeah, careful, Dirty Harry. So, sorry, thirteen going on thirty. It's a bad, bad from us. It's a bad, bad. Okay. Are we talking about Shazam now? Shazam. But did you know that Shazam was the original Captain Marvel? I did upon cursory research. Well, the, when I was at the Alamo Draft House today, if you go there early, they like give you context. So one, I thought it was funny that they like ironically played the theatrical trailer for Big because they like knew what genre we were doing this week. Right. Look at you go Brooklyn Alamo Draft House. All right. Um. But the other thing was they played this little documentary about like the history of Captain Marvel and how Captain Marvel eventually becomes Shazam. So this is the seventh movie in this new spate of uh, DCU films. It's directed by David Sandberg, who made two movies I'd heard of but have not seen. Uh, the horror movie Lights Out and then one of the Annabelle movies. Um, but this is definitely the biggest thing he'd ever worked on. I- I really miss the visually a visual aesthetic of uh, Zack Snyder. I think the most when I see a DC movie not directed by him. You thought that this would be appropriate for that aesthetic? Yeah, I wanted the weirdest angles possible of <laughs> Zachary Levi kind of being his character from Chuck again, except this time in a costume. <laughs> That's crazy, right? What are your superpowers? Superpowers, dude? I don't even know how to pee in this thing. This is proof of authenticity. Super strength. Electricity manipulation. Hyperspeed. I'd like to purchase some of your finest beer, please. The reason that this movie fits the genre is that a a 13-year-old runaway, repeat runaway foster kid named Billy Batson is sucked into a world that, like, I'm not going to be able to explain, but also the movie can't really explain it, where Jimon Hunsu is, like, alone in an 
in a netherworld temple, staring at gargoyles representing the seven deadly sins, and he's like, I'm the last of my wizarding kind. I need a champion. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's his lone goal, and he is hell-bent on finding this champion, so much so that he like pulls out anyone he can find, seemingly. Mostly young men, some like Asian women in their 20s. Right. Like, it, it seems to be anyone. Anyone. To see if they'll be his champion. And not only does he not do that initially, but in 1979 or whatever, he creates a supervillain by telling him he's a piece of shit in the middle of this car accident <laughs> that's happening that paralyzes his father. Right. So you, this is basically Garden State if the reason <laughs> that... <laughs> The reason that the mother was handicapped was because of Zach Braff being bought to the same set as the third Indiana Jones movie. But this time, it's yeah, it's Jimon Hansu waving this glowing stick around. Right. He's sitting alone. He literally the is like the last latch, night. Man. Well, this is almost like the idiot's version of you have to pick the chalice test it's like either pick the stick or pick the glowing eye yes and everyone's like i think i'm going with glowing and she's like no like what do you he chose poorly oh my god it's a yes or no question and everyone so far has gotten it wrong and he is getting weary they will not grab his staff as he commands them to (laughs) (laughs) um so we'll, we'll we can unpack how drawn out that universe is in a little bit. But uh, Billy Batson, after moving in with this new family, who seems like this great family in Philly, um, and becoming best friends with one of the kids who stars in It. What's that kid's name? The real talkative one, Jack Dylan Grazer, Freddie Freeman. But it doesn't matter to Billy how how well this is going. His mom abandoned him at a carnival. So many carnivals in these in these movies. Carnivals um, loom large. Yes. <laughs> it's it's almost like. Do you feel like the us is also a commentary on like us plays into the big universe? I couldn't help but thinking like that. Us and Big have a lot in common. Well, because they wander to the edge of the carnival, and the shadow the shadows outside of that confectionery setting. These are, are, are also so kind of shadow world movies. Totally. Where it's like in some universe, like Jennifer Garner had to continue being thirty. Without the magic. That's right. So what was I saying? He become Billy Batson becomes a uh, Shazam. He becomes he becomes a hero. He becomes Zachary Levi, uh, big buff Chuck, um, with a suit that makes him even bigger and buffer. And he uh, he goes around and does all the things that uh, a grown a thirteen year old boy who suddenly was a grown man would do if he thought he had superpowers, which is like try to punch things, try to fly, try to shoot lightning, go to some strip clubs, buy some beer. Um, you know, those hijinks ensue. But then, of course, this movie also has to stick to what I find to be pure tedium, a superhero movie formula in which he must fight Mark Strong and seven gargoyles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mark Strong and the is gargoyles the... look a bit like um, they're out of a movie directed by Steven Summers, don't they? They do. Yes. This is something they dusted off like the underlying code for the the guys from the the mummy right, p- right. going around with the, the mummies with their sticks. 
So Mark Strong's the one that you mentioned earlier, Dr. Sivana, the guy who was in that car and was looking at his magic eight ball. Yeah, because this movie has to, as Chance said, do that superhero movie thing and give them an enemy. Didn't you find like the prologue was like, huh? Oh, it was so much huh. And the only thing it really lines up with is that like weird scene, that Batman-esque scene where they're at like the boardroom and they're like, listen, black sheep child, this is for the adults. And then he's like, I brought these seven beasts with me. (laughs) I do. Can I, should I compliment, before I, you know, kind of tear into this movie a little, can I compliment Mark (laughs) Strong now? Why? Did you think his performance was standout? I think that he is just like up for anything in a ridiculous role. A ridiculous role. Like if this makes a this makes a Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes villain look like something from Wildlife. Like this guy is you know flying around talking to his gargoyles. At one point he goes to the foster home and Mark Strong with just the conviction of a character actor who knows he's about to make a million and a half dollars is like, I like this place. How quaint. No, wait. It's a shithole. <laughs> in my like seven person screening, I, I was like, what? And people were like mad at me for like laughing at that line. But it's insane the things they ask Mark Strong to do. And I love that too, that he's like in the middle of that monologue and then they just cut away of Zach Levi not being able to hear him. It's nice. But it's almost like, did they tell Mark Strong that this is like going to be a goof? Because I don't think he knew. It, it seems like. I think he went to the screening being like, and, and telling his wife being like, I have this great speech towards the, the end. Biggest highlight on those pages. And they cut it up into this dumb montage that's like not quite as mean as Deadpool. Is this movie rated R or PG-13? 13. It was pretty intense for 13, wasn't it? Well, here's my thing with this movie is that for as light as it ends up being and like slight spoilers here for Shazam, but like, I don't know, who cares? Um, this sort of like Power Ranger thing at the end, the the oh, setup and the plot with the mom are like 80s movie upsetting. It's like Free Willy or the Goonies um, or like a like a preteen Gus Van Sant style like here's just oh, like sure. a, a handsome kid who's that like, should be the whole fucking movie why if if they'd cut out the Mark Strong bit and really just had it be go ahead one or the other right I mean it, it's way too it's way too upsetting that his mom like did not want him. Um, the, the mother got separated from him for like 30 seconds and then saw him holding hands with this cop. And then she's like, well, I'm just going to leave him with the cops because right. I'm like a teenager. Yeah. And then he has this like alternate memory of like a like a nice moment they had together, which was then like reshot as like the horrible bleak truth of her being like, mommy's not a professional, honey, like throwing these darts like an insane person. <laughs> And this dissonance, unfortunately, in tone, I think is proportional with some crazy-ass dissonance between young Billy Batson and Zachary Levi. Because you know who can't play, I was like, you know, abandoned as a child and can't love anyone, is Zachary Levi. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely came from like a very loving Jewish family. Yeah. He calls his mother all the time. And and he's been hitting the gym and he's got the endorphins going. (laughs) He's feeling fine. 
it's an interesting read that they don't I think dig enough into the I mean this should have been like the Oliver or something of these kinds of movies right. it should be about the foster kids that it attempts to empower yeah with the storyline of family at the end but like it spends so much time on Mark Strong and like why shouldn't Mark Strong also be a sympathetic character like what happened to him was his fucking abusive and like toxically masculine older brother and father were like giving him shit for asking for help right in some context which leads to him then having to make this moral choice about this like scary guy asking to like touch his staff and say his name and he's like I'm going to stay over here with the seven people. Yeah. And then because of that, he's punished into witnessing and having survivor's guilt for an accident that injures both of his, his handicaps, his father and like injures his brother who then both immediately look at him and go, this is your fault. You did this. <laughs> like, why doesn't that's like a Harry Potter level, like right. wrong place, wrong time. Like I didn't mean to like, please give me a break don't let make me sleep under the stairs kind of bullshit that would make you root for Mark strong. I thought that was going to be, I was like Shazam, like sees the, his father. I thought the guy with the glasses was going to be Shazam. Of course. That's the fake out. Um, it's a weird move, isn't it? It is. And I just think, I think on a narrative level, I agree with you. And then I just don't quite understand this movie in an industry sense. This movie cost a hundred million dollars to make. That feels like way too much. How is this not like a forty million dollar, one hundred minute movie? The fact that this is like two twelve, and like feels like it has to get into the other thing about this movie is that it's so fucking anxious. Well, actually, this is it. I found I I know the answer to my question. This movie is so anxious that people will not care if it doesn't resemble like a sort of DC superhero movie with requisite darkness and does not contain the incessant branding of the DC universe that people won't care. And so it completely like fucks up its own like moviness a la big it insists on having these elaborate, violent, explosive, like there's that mall sequence where they're fighting and then they like go through the streets of Philadelphia, which is a great use of Philadelphia though Definitely. in this movie. Yeah, I like it. And I, I really appreciated because some of those Marvel movies, it's like, yes, the mean streets of New York and, and New York just looks like Times Square. Right. It's like there are other boroughs. Like I understand the Avengers headquarters is in Midtown, but like don't you guys venture out at all? Anyway, um, just like on a basic movie level, how if you're going to go with the seven deadly sins, how do you not render them as specific like looks or have like fighting properties to the sins? They're all just gargoyles. So we could take this movie apart all day. There are some things that I think are kind of like undeniable about it, though. The strip club gags are, like, handled pretty deftly. Trying out the superpowers is plenty fun. Um, it, yeah. Zachary Levi is 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 fine. Like, I think a lot He's of... He's not even in that much of this movie. <laughs> right, that's He's, true. like, only really in action sequences, and at that point he'll just, like, say something witty, like Zachary Levi's made a career out of doing, you know, and then he'll run off and be a CGI blur for 20 minutes. That's right. Um, you know who's actually really good in this movie? 
um, is Faith Herman, the little girl Darla, his foster She's sister. She's great. And you know who does a so much better job than Zachary Levi being Billy Batson when the transformation happens? Is that actress who is her when she ages and is like fighting. Oh, Megan Good? And still, yeah, and still saying childish stuff. It's really nicely done. Well, but very precocious child. I mean, it's very hard to play a precocious child like with a 30-year-old woman's body. Yes. She's great. Um, this movie has a big reference in it. He runs across the piano as Mark Strong's destroying that store, right? That's right. I think it's kind of funny that, of course, in this day and age of superhero movies, there is a requisite self-awareness. You can see it in that scene. You can see it in the thing you were talking about earlier, the gag where they're too far apart to hear each other during the uh, climactic monologue. But I feel like this movie is also like weirdly not self-aware in a lot of ways. Like Even though there are yeah. phones... Like, what is this movie set? Like, everyone's walking right. around like it's 1987. Like I said, it seems like a plot from a movie from 1987. The bullies are like a football player and a punk who hang out together in a big pickup truck. Like, Right, which is destroyed for laughs and redemption by the end of this movie. It's like, did anyone put any thought into, like, what this world would be like on a tangible level? Which is what you should do in a would-be small movie. But it's just like right. DC's idea of a small movie is... Is, is what we got here, and it's not small. There's just something vastly superior about the quality of the Marvel narratives to the DC narratives. Like, I just, I mean, this is coming from a place where I, like, just saw uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Did you like where it? Where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so brilliantly, good. It's so good. I mean, not only at a visual level, but it's also just on a storytelling level. Like, it manages to check off the box of, like, origin story and like dealing with first villain kind of thing sure but at the same time it's not so tired in the way it plays out and it manages to feel fresh right i think there's the sort of the weighty feeling of inevitability around these central characters and team-ups ought to at least make our side projects feel free feel a real sense of freedom that you right. get in spider-verse that this movie should have had and it only kind of has yeah i mean this movie feels like uh like the han solo movie yes. of like a bigger but like that movie fucking sucked and they like glued darth maul back together <laughs> which was, you had to explain to me on the podcast it was a steel molding um, he was steel molded back together. My glue, apologies crazy to person. the animated series <laughs> upon which that Star Wars canon is built. Um, yeah, I would bet you actually anything that Zachary Levi was probably considered for the role of Han Solo. And he would have done anyway. also fine. Okay, so what are we going to say about Shazam? Do you have a rating for this puppy? I don't think it's like a poorly made movie. And I don't think it's like not a good you know, Saturday, Sunday afternoon movie, which is when I saw it. Uh, so I think it's a soft, good, good from me mm. with the asterisks of I'm so fucking tired of superhero movies. Would you just for come, the aforementioned reasons? Will you just come down to bad good with me? Like, it's fine, but like also, but it's based on a, a universe whose rules make no sense at all it has jimon hunsu and mark strong yelling about wizards for 60 minutes um it's it's not like 
we just we just ripped it to pieces, kind of, in terms of its like narrative. Yeah, coherence. but that, that like got out all the bad feeling I had about it, really and now I can good, settle. Good? I think it's a oh, yeah, it's a good good. What are the I good, mean, by te- our what are the good technical parts of this movie? I mean, I think it has some interesting visual stuff in it. Like uh, what? Name them. All. I don't know. I like the smoke gargoyles. Like that was pretty foreboding. What are you when that's about? Start- you like the smoke gargoyles. They're like the most boring. I like boring the smoke. I think they've seen. like. I bet you this movie that in the industry they were talking about like the leaps and bounds they've come in like dark smoke. You know, like have you seen the smoke on? Shazam! That's what the smoke people are saying to each other from these VFX teams. Those are some of the most nondescript CGI monsters in recent memory. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you're right. They were kind of Stephen Summersy, a little bulbous for my taste. <laughs> I don't know. I liked the fact that it was sort of cheaper by the dozen, dressed up as a superhero movie. And there's something it's just playing with a lot of things on a narrative level that I found entertaining too. You're just talking and about. It it. Dis- you were describing a bad good movie. Join me. Touch the staff, not the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, like Mark Strong's <laughs> character, Dr. Savannah, I am going to listen to the voices in my head and pick the eyeball and That's say good so good. so silly. I, I dare you to listen back to the last 20 minutes and tell me if that was a good, good review you just gave this movie. This is a, I'm going to be, I'm going to give it a charitable bad good. Um, yeah, I've said everything. I have That's to fair. Say. I've I said mean, everything I have to say about Shazam. You have the bully point. pulpit here. You can, yeah. you can say your piece. Anyway, I mean, you know, it's better than Batman versus Superman or Justice League, that's for sure. I kind of liked Batman versus Superman. I was one of the maddest I've ever times I've ever had with you on this show. <laughs> I kind of thought it was interesting. I kind of think that your opinions make no you sense. You remember that weird scene where he's like fighting those yeah, big so bugs and then you talked about that. And then it has nothing like a, to do with anything in the movies. It's tactical. It's sort guys. of like when the movie switches to Italian in The Godfather Part Two. <laughs> it's like, how long's this part gonna last? Are you Zack Snyder's agent or are you reviewing these movies? I wasn't joking when I said I missed the visual stylings of oh one Zack God. Snyder. Should we make a joke about how you're just a 13-year-old in a 30-year-old's body when you're reviewing DC films? I have in perpetuity been a 75-year-old man trapped right. in whatever age body I happen to be. You're still living out Issa Rae's little, um, which... I, w- I am the, the product of a, a movie that's yet to be made about an old man who gets trapped and has to live his adolescence through however, what age... Uh, yeah, it's like a 20-hour movie about a guy who slowly feels comfortable as he nears death. Um, well, thank you for joining us on today's Be Real. Buddy, thanks for uh, doing this pretty fun category with me. It was, a, it was a hoot. It was a laugh ride. It was. Lucy really appreciated our movies being you know watchable and not unrelentingly dark. There were some crowd pleasers here, I think. Um, yeah. So, as always, show some love to our fellow shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. Uh, Indie Beat just put up a show with uh, Micah Khan. We talked about Can You Ever Forgive Me and Triple Frontier recently. Um, follow us on social media. Check out berealpodcast.com to, to hang out with all the shows. we got some uh, like director interview minis coming up here, but we should be back in your ears soon with uh, what I'm told is a very, very trashy show. Are you excited for that? 
Oh, yeah. I'm pretty pumped. Are we going to uh, tell the people or no? Yeah, we're dipping our toe into the It might involve you going to garbage see after. Heap. It, it may involve, yeah, anyone seeing after or anyone being dragged there. It feels like it's one of the few romantic movies that's been released this year. So it may get, I, I predict so. it being bigger than uh, people think. Okay. Uh, buddy, pleasure to talk to you as always. I can't wait till next time. Talk to you soon. <laughs>